0: You're listening to a Wheels on the Ground production.
1: Hello, and welcome to the first episode of Crip Times. Today on Crypt Times, we will be speaking to Cyrus Marcus Ware, an artist and activist with your hosts, Yusuf, Kayla, and Christina. And now we have the general recording going. So, welcome, Cyrus, to uh, the first episode of Crypt Times. Uh, it is an absolute pleasure to have you here. Uh, would you like to give a little bit about yourself for our listeners?
2: It's an honor to get to be part of the inaugural broadcast and um, I'm Cyrus. I'm uh, an artist, an activist, an educator, a scholar, um, I'm a professor at McMaster University, I'm an activist with Black Lives Matter Toronto and Blockorama, and uh, as a visual artist I've been making work for about 25 years um, here in Toronto and beyond. and. Um, Yeah, I I am so happy to get to chat with you.
1: And we're really pleased to have you uh, on board for this episode. Um, To start off with our first question, um, we spoke uh, as a group last, um, right after you had done an action in front of the Toronto Police Headquarters, I believe it was. Um, And now we're uh, finally recording the episode a few months later. Uh, And the most recent headline being that uh, Donald Trump has COVID-19, which I think we found up as of this morning. Um, So I was wondering if you might want to speak a little bit uh, as to what's been going on for you as an artist and an activist in that roller coaster of a time that we've been um, going through.
2: Yeah, what a wild uh, 2020 it has been. I mean, my experience has been very similar to what a lot of people are saying. Uh, Nobody could have predicted any of the things that have happened on this year. Um, When we last spoke, it was uh, just after Juneteenth, which is a very significant day for Black communities. It's a day when we remember the signing of the Emancipation Proclamation and a bunch of other liberatory struggles that happened in the month of June. in the southern part of Turtle Island. And uh, we had created a 7,500 square foot mural, a public mural created with 80 artists that said defund the police. And it was written in bright neon pink, the queerest color we could find, Um, and it was painted uh, in real time on the morning of Juneteenth. And it was such a beautiful moment. It was this moment of solidarity of action, of this uprising that was just beginning at that moment that really became this revolutionary moment, you know, throughout the summer But this was just at the beginning of it. It was just shortly after the killing of uh, George Floyd and B.J. Krzynski Paquette and before the shooting of Jacob Blake. And uh, we came together this this bright and early this morning and painted this huge mural. And it was just so powerful, you know? And then, of course, we did another you know, and this movement for defunding the police was growing and swelling and spreading all over the world. You know, it's a global movement. And of course, what started to happen is that the police started to push back, right? Because of course, what was happening was that the movement was actually quite successful. When we start to actually ask questions about just what it is that the police do particularly well, And when you actually start to try to make a list, okay, well, they're not responding to sexual assaults very well. You know, they don't seem to de-escalate conflict when they arrive. They seem to escalate conflict. They they don't respond to crisis calls. So all of the mad people who are being killed or taken away to psychiatric detention in these so-called wellness checks, you know, they're saying, well, well, you're not doing that particularly well. So you start asking the question questions, it starts to become pretty obvious that we're spending millions of dollars on something that isn't actually working for, for so many of us. So that movement started to grow and swell, and of course the state does not want to change, and the police do not want to be defunded, and so they started to crack down on, you saw a lot of crackdowns on activism all across Turtle Island, and in Um, you know, but there's other amazing, incredible things that have happened. People have been able to practice collective care for a couple of months now, and they've been able to, you know, for, for some of us for years, in disability communities for years. But, you know, in the sort of mainstream, people have been practicing it for a couple of months now, and people have been starting to get kind of more politicized. And so there's there's beautiful uh, movement and action happening that is that is starting to to reimagine the, the state of the world. So in June, when we were saying, hey, you know, I think it's time to defund the police, Even though in my heart I was screaming, we need to abolish it, we weren't really ready to spread that. You know, the message was people were scared even just to think of defunding. Whereas now, with everything that's happened, people are regularly saying we need to abolish the system that killed Breonna Taylor. We need to abolish this entire system. So just in a short couple of months, we've gone from maybe we have a problem with policing to this, burn it all down, which is what I've been wanting to do since 1996 when I became an activist. I was like, we need to change the system um, and we need to change ourselves. So um, yes, miraculous things have happened since we last talked. They found life on Venus. Um, you know that was like didn't it, didn't see that coming um you know and uh yes, they did uh, you know shoot Jacob Blake seven times uh you know in the back um yeah, there's just been so much that's and as you say now tr- the the trumps uh, supposedly have covid or and or are trying to avoid further terrible debates and or, both have COVID and are trying to avoid terrible mm. debates. But we are definitely witnessing a 2020 like no other. Um, and uh, yeah, it's, it's incredible.
0: This is Kayla speaking. Um, last time we spoke, you were identifying that there is an erasure of Black identities in disability activism. And you specifically identified Black Lives Matter Toronto as a disability activist group. Um, and so for our listeners who might not be aware, would you like to speak a bit more about intersections of those movements and identities and how disability justice is prioritized um, in your work and in your organizing?
2: Yeah, I mean, disability justice has, you know, broadly conceptualized, has always been part of our movements from, you know, Harriet Tubman leading the Underground Railroad as a disabled Black woman, in part because she was a disabled Black woman, that she was able to be as successful as she was, and because of the way that systemic ableism created the conditions for her to have this acquired brain injury after a beating on the slave labor camp, and then her, you know, the people who were around her not believing that she could possibly be this Uh, brilliant mastermind because they had a lot of assumptions about disability Um, you know so 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 from that point all the way through disability has been part of our organizing and in the Black Lives Matter movement which is a queer and trans led movement it's a disabled led movement we absolutely are doing work and organizing to try to draw attention to these police killings and to this disproportionate amount of Black death that we see on Turtle Island and Inuit Nunavut in this current moment. And when you look at who it is who's being killed, on the regular, it's often Black mad people. It's often Black disabled people. So we necessarily root our work in disability justice because that is who we're fighting for. I mean, this is what, this is who's is, who's being killed. When we did that broad campaign around Andrew Loku and we set up a tent city in front of police headquarters in 2016, that was in support of mad Mad lives. That was to make sure that mad people got to be mad in public space, to make sure that mad people got to, to live and to thrive and to, and to become elders and and all of the things that get taken from us because just the very nature of being mad in public space and believing behaving in ways that are seen to be unexpected by by sanest people um you know it is enough for us to to be killed or or to be locked away in psychiatric detention so we've been continuing to do this work uh, that centers around disabled, mad, and deaf people um, and necessarily root our work in disability justice as a result of it. So yeah it's a big part of the movement for Black Lives, it's a big part of Black Lives Matter and um, you know the the kinds of changes that we're hoping to push for, the kinds of revolutionary system-wide changes that we're pushing for when we talk about abolition, would necessarily result in a radically reimagined world that would be so much more welcoming uh, for disabled deaf and mad people. It would be a world that desired disability because we would have completely reimagined, we would have completely reimagined the structure of our society. So we would have indigenous resurgence. We would have uh, a place that thought that Black lives were inherently valuable. We would have a world where trans women would get to live to be in their 80s and their 90s. You know, we would have a world where disabled deaf and mad people were expected, were anticipated, were celebrated, you know, where all of the ways that our body minds worked and 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 behaved were exactly what were supposed to happen, you know, where we would actually honor the many, many gifts that we all come with, you know, from this wild universe that we are born into, you know, that we would all of our all of our experience that would would be considered inherently valuable. That's the kind of revolutionary change we're talking about, you know, it, it is a radical reimagining of our entire world. And as we get rid of some of the things like race capitalism you know, that is, you know, that ties value to productivity, which is inherently ableist, and will always be something that doesn't work for disabled people, because we sort, we don't follow the same uh, temporal, uh, you know, we we don't follow timelines in the same way, because we have a crypt way that we crip our time. And, you know, this rooting everything in race capitalism creates the conditions where particular people have money, and the rest of us don't. And so as we undo capitalism, we're in this period of late capital where the system is collapsing. We're about to become so much freer, you know? Um, So yeah, money, uh, race, uh, disability, all of these things are interconnected and create particular experiences for, for, for folks who are really marginalized in the system. And so trying to imagine a world that is vastly different, the world that as the Combehe River Collective says in the 1970s, you know, the folks who are most marginalized, when you make the world safer for them, we're necessarily making it safer for everybody. So we're working for a world where Black trans women with disabilities or who are mad or who are deaf are thriving, because if we've done that, we've done it for everybody.
3: I am in awe of every single word that comes out into your mouth, Cyrus, and just to, to witness you as a human and the fact that I'm um, able to kind of overlap with your life on this planet is such a privilege. Um, I kind of wanted to talk a little bit more about what you've seen as a bringing of abolition into the collective conscience. In, really in the last couple of months. Um, like you mentioned, you've been working in abolitionist spaces since 1996. And really in the summer in 2020 has brought defund the police, abolish the police into our consciousness. And as an activist, how, how have you seen the movement change? Um, and what do you think kind of gets lost in the messaging with just hashtag defund the police?
2: I mean, certainly, you know, when we were starting to talk about, you know, when we were talking about abolition in the nineties, you know, people would sort of, like they just, it was just, it was a non-starter, you know, it was really like uh, record stop, you know, even in activist spaces, even in activist spaces, there was this, but what about, or this idea of carceral feminism, or all of these ways that we were relying on carceral logics to, uh to sort of do away with the harms that we were experiencing, you know, and so you know, being in this moment now, 25 years later, where you know seemingly seemingly everybody i put that in quotations i suppose but everybody is talking about abolition it is a wild wild thing to be able to be having these robust conversations about what our world could look like if we resolved conflict crisis and harm in different ways you know and i'm having that conversation with with my my parents i'm having that conversation with you know right-wing newscasters I'm having that conversation with you know my kids daycare I'm having that conversation in all of the most unlikely sources I'm reading about it in Cosmo magazine you know so it is really a conversation whose time has come you know and I think that in this in this you know so, so that trajectory of just how abolition has been taken up is really interesting to see but I also want us to caution you know away from a neoliberalization of the word and of the meaning, right? And so the neoliberalism tries to consistently take out the politics from a concept to uh, depoliticize um, as a way of ensuring the state's survival. You know, it, it necessarily takes all of the responsibility of, away from the state and, and moves it on to the individual, you know, and that's just part of Neoliberal practice. So it's not going to say it's not going to fully embrace abolition because that would mean changing the state, not changing the individual. You know, Our current society is set up on a carceral logic that you just need to fix the people. The state is fine. And of course, we know that's not true. The state is working exactly as it is intended to. It is not broken. It therefore cannot be fixed. We must abolish it. Right. So this is a really interesting moment that we find ourselves in. Um, And I think, you know, um, abolition, you know, is is a is is has been rooted in so many communities. There are so many ways that we can govern ourselves. We can turn to indigenous knowledges. We can turn to, uh, you know, Black traditions. We can turn to, you know, all of the ways in disability justice communities that we've developed ways to transform harm, to practice transformative justice, to to resolve conflict, to pod map, to take care of each other. We can turn to all of these ways that we've already created for how to do this, and we can draw on those in order to continue this work. So yeah, abolition is, is I'm, I mean, abolition is very possible in our lifetime. You know, in 1996, talking about closing the prisons and people would just be like, but what about, and in 2020, you can say, well, maybe we should close the prisons. And people are like, yeah, let's talk about what else we could do instead. And people are, and, and now there's a possibility to actually have that conversation. Um, so it's very exciting. It's a very exciting moment to be alive, for sure.
1: I'm really interested in how your practice um, in the abolition movement, um, but also is what you were saying about earlier of, honoring all these different people and experiences and places that we come from as individuals. I'm interested in how those two things intersect in your arts practice. And if you could speak about that a little bit, because I've seen it, for example, um, in your work um, creating Antarctica um, as a theater piece and installation. I also see it um, in the large scale drawings you do of, artists and activists. Um, And I'm interested how those two things have sort of turned you into the uh, creative that you are now.
2: Yeah, thanks. Um, Yeah, my art and activism are intrinsically connected. Uh, I have been making work that is rooted in this uh, idea of Black activist culture and exploring Black activist culture and trying to understand it and trying to support the lives of activists. I uh, started doing um, an activist love letter project in 2012 that had strangers writing love letters to activists in their communities. And I mailed, you know, thousands of letters out over the years. And I really was trying to build up a community network of support around folks who are fighting for change because I had read this beautiful letter that this mad activist, Tucker Gomberg, wrote at the end of his life where he wrote this open letter to all activists and he said that it was essential to do things in our lives that supported us outside of activism so that we could do activism and fully do it. But that we have other things like gardening and friends and bike rides and things that sustain us outside of just organizing relationships. So that if you do start to tumble into a depression or a burnout, you have other things to rely on other than just activist movements, because activism is fast paced, it's quick. People, you know, they're just on to the next meeting, they don't always have the time to stop and to slow down. So to have other things in your life. So I was really moved by that and um, started getting people to write these love letters as a way of building relationships outside of activism for people. And then I started drawing people and I started drawing really large and trying to celebrate them and trying to honor this labor, the labor of activism, you know, this labor of doing the meetings and making the photocopies and, you know, make sewing the banners and, you know, all of the, the, the stuff that is behind the scenes, you know, you just see the activists in front of the camera on the news, but there's like a million steps before that to get them to that place. So, um, you know, drawing these portraits that kind of celebrated and revered activists was a way, all of this is part of this tenant of abolition, which is we take care of each other. So abolition is an idea that says that we can take care of each other. We don't need the police to take care of us. We don't need the state to take care of us. We take care of us. And so my practice has been rooted in this idea of trying to Help take care of us. You know, help us take care of each other. Um, when I made the performance and play Antarctica, it was you know set in this dystopic future where the state hadn't done a particularly good job at taking care of us. So much so that climate change was run rav- ravaged, uh, and that the the planet was dying because of it. And that the only last hospitable place left on Earth was Antarctica, now thawing out. Um, And that play was very much about white supremacy and about abolition and about uh, climate change and about systems collapse and about uh, all of the things that we find ourselves in in this current moment. It was very much a speculative speculative look of what 2025 could potentially look like if we continued on the same trajectory. So, um, but there's this activist in it. There's this activist who believes in... Abolishing the state and she believes in abolishing the company that sent them there and she believes in uh, uh, Creating a, a new world where they take care of each other where people can come to if they're if they can make it there where they can be free to together. Um, And so she's very much this abolitionist activist who happens to be amongst the 11 that get sent home to stake these future land claims in Antarctica. So that was a really fun project to get to work on and to try to unpack a little bit about what abolition could look like in everyday life and the ways that we can kind of try to take care of each other. Um, And then I have been, you know, doing other speculative future work, which to me is very much about abolition, because abolition is a speculative practice because it's, it's imagining another world being possible. And, you know, when we try to talk to people about why we need to abolish the prison and police system, they get really scared and they say, oh, but what about this, 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 this? And then it stops us from ever having a conversation about what alternatives could actually look like. So I try to make work that explores what the alternatives could actually look like. So in the project Ancestors Do You Read Us, Dispatches from the Future, it's set in 2072, and we have survived, and we've overthrown the police, and we've gotten rid of capitalism, and Black and Indigenous people have survived, and so therefore everybody has survived, and we've created this other world where we are free. And they, uh, our ancestors, uh, used old technology to patch back into their past, into 2019, to give us this message of hope and what we need to do in order for them to live in their beautiful, glorious freedom in 2072. And basically, they're saying it's time to overthrow the state. <laughs> and it's time to get rid of white supremacy. And it's time to, to do all of these things. And then we're going to make it. And we do make it. And so, um, yeah, that's what I make work about.
1: I think that's the best advice you could give anyone at this point.
0: <laughs> and, you know, last time we spoke as well, you were um, quoting Tony K. Bambara, who says the role of the artist is to make the revolution irresistible. And I think you're one of the folks out there doing that. Um, I think, Thank you. you know, <laughs> yeah. Um, and, you know, that, Irresistibility makes the most marginalized among us desirable as well, right? Um, and I wanted to ask you about the diverse methods of protesting that you've identified. Um, you know, for disabled folks to be involved as well, like nothing about us without us, and and saying like, if disabled people aren't there, it's not the revolution. Um, so what ways recently have you been really inspired by disabled folks um, showing up for the revolution?
2: Yeah, I mean, there's just been so many ways that people have been creating revolutionary action from their homes and from their beds. And we saw dis- disability leadership disabled leadership from the beginning of this pandemic, you know, as disabled people are like, oh, we all got to stay home. Okay, here's what you do. Oh, we need to start prepping and getting stuff together so that we can be ready for any eventuality. Oh, we've been doing that forever. Here's what you do. Oh, it's everything's just online and that's your only way to connect with people? Got that too. Here's what you do. So disabled people have been taking the lead at setting the tone for how to survive this pandemic since the beginning. And then when the revolution popped off in June, And I'm calling it the revolution because it really is this moment of revolutionary action Uh, at the end of a climate change cycle that could be make or break it. So it it really is now or never. This is the moment. So, you know, in in that revolutionary action, we started seeing incredible activism coming out of disability communities that looked different. People were organizing in ways that didn't just require you going out of your house and meeting up with 5,000 people, which is so inaccessible for a million reasons and also a really terrible idea during a pandemic we had to gather in the streets, I understand that, and I'm in support of all the folks who gathered. But there are other ways that we can do it that that would help to keep all of us a little bit safer. So watching the ways that people were sharing and supporting PPE, watching the ways that people were making sure that people had food delivery after rallies and protests, like those were really beautiful things. But also, you know, all of the crip ways that we were doing it from our bed. So people were doing poster projects. People were doing podcasts. People were doing online organizing. People had online you know, gatherings. There was just so many ways that people were having these conversations. The Prisoners' uh, course, prisoners' Rights Project in Toronto was doing, um, you know, weekly webinars. So there was all these things that you could engage with from home. So in a way, you know, it, it created more opportunity for disabled, sick and mad people, uh, deaf and mad people to, to be engaged. I was seeing a lot more stuff being interpreted, having captioning. It was just, a really encouraging moment. So, you know, I, I was talking with Leah Lakshmi uh, Pyabthya Samarasina in the, in the spring, and we were talking about all of this activism that was happening, but we were also talking about, you know, some of the activism in the streets and feeling a sense of uh, what's ha- you know, what's happening, how are people gathering and what's, what's going to happen. And, you know, what does it mean for those of us who can't gather in the streets because of immune issues? Um, and one of the things that we concluded was that we we really didn't need to worry because if this is going to be the revolution, it will only be the revolution if disabled deaf and mad people are at the center and we are going to be and we will be. And so, you know, this, this is not the revolution if it's not that, right. And so, you know, we know that the organizing is going to look, Dramatically different, and particularly now as we head into the second wave, um, you know the organizing is going to need to take leadership from uh, from from disabled folks because we're the ones who are going to know how to make sure that we do this in a way that keep us safe. But this is also room for artists to come in. You know, artists are so creative, and we need to start imagining new ways of organizing mm-hmm. that don't just require bodies coming and standing in a similar place you know organizing can look so many different ways and artists can be really uh inspiring in helping us to think more broadly so uh disabled and crip artists to the front please and let's imagine some new ways together
3: yeah no i think i think these imagining a new future is really what we need to be doing and currently there's so much conversation about like reopening the economy in the midst of COVID-19 and it's like well what if we actually just reimagined our world Um, and I feel like the like the work that you're doing and the work that um, activists are doing are offering these reimaginings in the future that don't require an economy to be harmful to the livelihoods of people, especially uh, disabled
2: folks. Yeah, capitalism doesn't work for most people. I mean, capitalism was a, is a very temporary system. We've only had it in human history for actually a short period of time relative to human history, and it's a system that is designed to make sure that some people have a ton and the rest of the people have very, very little. So that as a functioning system... That people are gonna just acquiesce to and not rebel against is a dying. Mean, it's just not possible that that could go on in perpetuity because Jeff Bezos or Bozos, whatever his name is, you know, from Amazon, who made who made millions and millions of dollars through this pandemic as the rest of us panic bought, uh, you know, sundries so that we can have a prep supply. Um, you know, that can't continue forever. That these that this 1% just keeps accumulating wealth and hospitals have to reuse PPE and schools don't have enough money for the teachers. And I mean, it's just, it, it is a system that does not work. And so we also know that it's a system that is dying. So all systems go through a life cycle. So there's this a theory of panarchy, panarchy cycles, which originated in the 1800s, but the, it's this idea that, that all systems go through a, an adaptive change life cycle. So even a system like a society goes through a life cycle cycle and so it goes through a period of rapid growth and expansion which we saw with capitalism you know through the 19 um hundreds and then we see and then it, it becomes so vast and so complex that it can no longer support the life at the bottom you know the forest has grown so tall and its canopy is so broad that the light can't make it through to the little plants at the bottom of the at the bottom of the forest and so it starts to collapse it can no longer sustain itself we are in a period of systems collapse and what happens after that is a period of rapid reorganization and reimagining planting new seeds in the bottom of the forest floor after the fire you know and new things start to grow and then you have a new society that grows and expands and then eventually collapse. So we're in a period of system collapse right now, where capitalism is no longer sustainable. At the height of the pandemic in the spring, they were putting a trillion dollars a day into the stock market, a trillion dollars a day just to sustain it, because it is an unsustainable mechanism under conditions like this. So, We've been, you know, academics and scholars have been talking about this period of late capital since the late 90s, you know, that we were in a period of late capital, that capitalism was dying. Well, now this is what it actually looks and feels like. It looks like this bizarre phenomenon that we find ourselves in where, you know, they were pumping oil out of the earth you know even though they couldn't sell the oil in the spring and the barrels that they were selling for however many dollars a barrel were now worth negative they're paying people to take the oil stop pumping the oil out if you have enough stop pumping the oil out but capitalism is predicated on you always need more 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 built more growth more expansion more more extraction and that is just not sustainable. It's not sustainable for anything where there's life, where there's living beings. You know, you just can't extract until there's nothing left and expect anything to be standing at the end of it, anything to be living, sorry, at the end of it. Sorry for that ableist language. So yeah, so it's it's just a, it's just a, an amazing time to be witnessing the fall of capitalism, you know. Um, and this system is 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 something else is about to be birthed something much more beautiful that won't rely on money uh, in order to consider who is inherently valuable.
1: And I think that's really beautiful as like, not like, you know, uh, not that, not that like fall or destruction is beautiful, but rather that, that <laughs> it's, it's a way for us to understand what's happening. I think it's, it, it really paints a picture of, hope of yes better things can absolutely come out of it you know um if history has taught us anything you're right it has happened before i keep you know thinking you know being an american and looking at what's happening um to the south of us i always I, i keep having like in the back of my mind go oh hey it's the fall of the roman empire all over again um as many people have said before and i guess it it kind of leads me to ask you if this is the fall um, what do you hope what do you imagine that the spring is going to be? What do you hope for our future in that case? What is your dream for that?
2: Yeah, I mean I write a lot about the future. I write a lot of speculative fiction Mm -hmm. and um, I spend a lot of time trying to imagine what it could look like, and to be honest, I actually don't—I actually don't quite know which direction we're going to go in. But I do know that in a lot of my writing, the stories are often set in a future that is decidedly less technological than the current one that we're in, uh, where you know we perhaps return a bit more to some old ways. Um, you know, and I think that figuring out how to do that in a way that still ensures that everybody has access, you know, in a beautiful, uh, full way, uh, but we can return to some old ways of being together. Um, in the futures that I've ri- written about, um, I've, uh, we've often, you know, returned to being much more in relation to the earth and to the land. Um, we are in communities and we support each other and take care of each other we collectively are responsible for our shared goods. So in the stories I write, people are often taking turns going and collecting water and they're often having nightly and, and, and evening gatherings where they dance and celebrate together. And so in the future that I imagine, we've returned to a bit of a different way of being together um, and being in relation to the land. Now, in reality, outside of the page, you know, outside of a fiction book, I think that probably our future will continue to be influenced by technology. And I think that there are beautiful ways that we could use technology to help, you know, heal the planet and to help make sure that everybody is as connected as they could be so that people don't feel a sense of isolation. While at the same time, I think we're turning to Indigenous knowledge practices and to old ways of knowing. Um, There's this beautiful um, uh, symbol in the Adinkra language, uh, which is a pictorial language from the Ashanti people in Ghana and West Africa. And it's a historic language. And it it says uh, Sankofa. And it's this image of a, there's two images for Sankofa, but one of them is of a a, a goose that is walking forward, but looking backwards at its tail. And it says, you know, it is not wrong to go back and pick up what you have forgotten. So Mm. as somebody with a memory impairment, I've always been really interested in that concept. But this idea that we can learn from our past in order to plan for our future is really important to me. And I think that we can turn to some traditional knowledges as a way of maybe imagining what we might want to head towards in our future. Um, Yeah, it's pretty wild. I'm I'm very excited about the possibility that we, as Asada Shakur tells us, we can win, we can do this. We can solve climate change, we can heal the planet, We can end anti-black racism and white supremacy we can make sure that the future is not just accessible but is led by disabled mad and deaf leadership you know that we're actually running a lot of the decisions about how we want to organize and be together because we are the experts in this idea of taking care of each other you know imagining that we could live in communities that were much more interconnected that were much more um, supportive of each other like i i really think that we're about to get so much fear and I, I can't wait. Yeah,
1: I think that's, it's, it's really comforting getting the reminder that we can learn from the past. Like these things already exist for us, the things that will, that can help us thrive in the very uncertain future um, and uncertain present that we can, that we have these things that our ancestors that our grandparents did before us that we can use to survive and keep the world a flourishing place.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is the, yeah, there, yeah, these, you know, that expression of sort of being on the shoulders of, of giants that we can you know look at some of the work that has already been done and also look to the new ways that the young ones are imagining and dreaming up that we hadn't even thought of you know and having you know intergenerational work I think is a big part of this you know it, it really will fuel our future in a more beautiful way. Um, I think about the work that the Black Panther Party was doing in 1971, where they gathered people to rewrite the constitution. They were like, the constitution's a mess. We're gonna rewrite it. And they gathered uh, folks from all these different, you know, all these different parts of the black, black communities to come together to rewrite this constitution. And they have a treaty in there on the rights of children and about how the children have the right to be to be children, and the children have the right to make decisions, and children have the right to self-determination. They also have an elaborate uh, section on uh, queer and trans rights, and they are asking for things in 1971 that we're still fighting for today: the right to be gay anytime, any place; the right to sex change on demand, as it was called at the time. You know, those are things that they wrote about in 1971 that we're still fighting for today, but. And they have, you know, the rights for for women, the rights for migrants, the right for for drug users. There was all of these things that they wrote out that they'd like to see in their ideal society. But what I'm so struck by is this section on the rights of children, you know, that we could actually value children as being inherently valuable beings, not little adults Mm -hmm. or somebody who's about to become valuable. You know, Mm -hmm. when they, when they, because that's what capitalism does is it says that your main value is in the 18 to 35 year old range when you're able to just, consistently work and produce in order for somebody else to make money right Right. so instead we could say oh children are valuable just as they are actually not as future workers but as actually as as they are and our elders are valuable you know not as former workers but as inherently just as they are you know so intergenerational movements are where it's at and i think that that's going to be a big thing as we move forward into into our futures
0: I was just saying I've been thinking a lot about um, children and capitalism lately. I have been reading Anne Helen Peterson's book on burnout and she describes exactly what you're saying where children are being raised um, with their productivity in mind before all else and having their schedules you know jam-packed with um, extracurricular activities and extra tutoring and sports and and things that aren't for joy but for, yeah, making these mini adults, and it's, it's not great. <laughs> um, no, it. so thank you for bringing that up.
2: Yeah, it's really, I mean, I have a nine-year-old, and, you know, it's like, just, it's wild being able to be around a kid, and we're raising her, you know, we're activist parents, and we're raising her from an activist pedagogy so you know the most important thing to me that she learns is social Mm -hmm. justice values and then the math and trigonometry can come later like I'm really not that particularly worried about it I want her to learn uh about activism I want her to learn about justice I want her to learn about the climate I want her to learn about things like that that's that's very important to me um but yeah just this this way that you know that that kids um, they're awesome. If you actually just listen to them, if we actually paid attention mm-hmm. to them, I mean, they have such incredible, I can remember, I wish I would, I wish I could tell you this woman's name because, it, you know, this will be my biggest regret, I guess. Of, of, You know, one of the things about having a memory impairment is that you, if it's not written down, but there was this activist who I got connected to in the nineties and she was 13 and she had spoken mm-hmm. at this massive rally in New York and, uh, there was a recording, because this is the 90s, wasn't on the internet, it was a recording that I heard of her speech, and she was just like, ah, like, like Marsha P. Johnson and uh, Sada Shakur balled into one, you know, incredible, <laughs> but like, in what world do we take leadership from 13-year-olds in our movement? Mm-hmm. Well, maybe we should be, you know, maybe we should be, so just, yeah, making more room for for children to be considered inherently valuable, just as they are exactly as they are in the moment that they're in, you know? I think that that's so important, but this is what we get. This is what, this is the kinds of freedoms and the kinds of ways that we're gonna get to relate to each other once we get rid of capitalism.
1: So Cyrus, in this intergenerational future that you envision, what would be the advice that you would give, What what is the thing that you would want to, to say to other kids or what do you say to other kids um, when they show interest in being involved in these
2: i mean i would say we need we need you you know like like the world needs you so badly your ideas your creativity your games your play we need you and it's not often that grown ups say to kids you know i actually really need i really need you but we do you know like i understand we don't want to put a lot of pressure on them and we don't want them to feel undue pressure but we need them our survival is actually essential to the to them so just making sure that they know that they're valuable making sure that they know that we need their we welcome their ideas and that we want room for them i can remember my daughter and the daughter of uh, a co-organizer with black lives matter years ago now uh you know at our meetings we'd have childcare, and the kids would go and play and we'd have our meeting and then one day the the, the kids came and they said wait a minute why is it that we go and play and you guys have the meeting? Aren't we in Black Lives Matter too? Shouldn't we set the meeting sometimes? And I was like, Yeah, you guys are four, but I'm um, sure. <laughs> yeah, actually, why why don't you set the agenda? We might have a more interesting time. So just like making sure that kids know that they yeah, actually there's there is no wrong time for them to get involved and they can start to imagine, you know, the potential futures. Uh, You know, they're already doing so much activism. They're doing activism that we don't even see as parents and as adults. You know, the kind of organizing that they're doing on the playground every time one of them stands up for another one who has a queer parent, you know? Every time they're standing up and and calling out transphobia, which kids do all the time because gender stuff doesn't matter to kids. They're like, oh, you identify as a guy? Okay, cool, whatever. And they just move on, you know? The way that kids are taking the lead on climate change. And, you know, my daughter was coming home from school saying, you know, we have to use our food and not waste it and we have to recycle and we have to, you know, that the kids are really, they want to they be able to, to live. They want to live in a future where the planet is around. So they've already been taking leadership in climate change. So kids are already incredibly involved in their own ways. We just don't necessarily see them because it happens on the playground or it happens when they're away from the grown-ups. But they're already negotiating. They're figuring out ways to resolve conflict on the playground. You know, they're figuring out all these things that we as grown-ups are trying to figure out. That's what abolition is, is just figuring out new ways of resolving conflict, crisis and harm, you know, and kids are trying to do that. You know, my daughter was lucky enough to have this incredible teacher, Madame Lalonde, who taught them about how to go from a big conflict to a little conflict and how to identify whether something's a big problem or a little problem. And that, I mean, I wish wish most of the police officers on our force that had that training, you know, uh, from this grade two teacher, from grade three teacher, you know, because I mean, I think a lot of people could use to understand whether this is a big problem or a little problem. So kids are, are, are quite trained already and quite adept at doing this work. We just have to bring them into our movements and consider their work to be valuable.
0: Amazing. We're just gonna sit with that for a second. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's so, it's so simple, but it's so impactful. Mm-hmm.
3: One thing that I kind of wanted to talk about a little bit is is everything that we talked about in in this conversation and your activist work and your artistic work, in kind of my, the limits of my brain at this current moment in time, kind of see them as oppositional to traditional institutional academia. Um, And you recently started at McMaster University, So how do you bring in this bright and wonderful artistic and academic practice into a more traditional academic space that is contained within an institution that hasn't typically embraced activism um, and art practices in the way that you then acted them?
2: Yeah, I mean, the academic industrial complex is a thing. I mean, it is an industrial complex. And so we know that it, it can be this very contested space. But I have always sort of drawn my work on, you know, based my work on this beautiful conceptualization of activist scholarship that uh, Chinyere Apara and Mona Ozakara Ray write about. And they talk about how we can create these what they call semi-autonomous zones in our classrooms where we get to, you know, do things a little bit differently and and practice things a little bit differently and bring in more radical thought and bring in more activist traditions. And so we can create these semi-autonomous environments, even within a larger institution. And so they talk about the need for activist scholars to be in those spaces, because it can be a moment where you can really politicize an entire group of people, you know, to get involved and engaged in organizing if you do it in the right way. So, you know, I'm very much drawn to that. And then I also, Think about um, just the ways that so many of our elders, you know, were involved in trying to push for change from within and without academia. Let's not forget that Huey Newton was Dr. Huey P. Newton. You know, he was a professor. Angela Davis is Dr. Angela Davis. So like that, a lot of people seem to have gone into academia as a way of doing something. And then what I'm interested in is, okay, well, once you get into those environments, how are you making change? And how are you pushing for the kinds of systemic changes that would dramatically improve the lives of all of the people that you're engaging with through that environment? You know, because academic institutions can be very violent places. Places, and they can be places that are not rooted in safety and so how do we you know change these spaces through our presence there um, so yeah I, I I really you know I encourage everyone to check out Chinni Riyapara and Mona Ray's work um, uh, because it, it provides a bit of hope for a way to do it um, yeah I, yeah it's good I mean I, I feel very happy my university was very actively involved in the student strike. And, you know, I think that there are ways that people are trying to make uh, these places into sites of change. And that's very encouraging.
3: Thank you. <laughs> my, my soul needed that conversation today. <laughs> um, we asked all
0: of our guests the same two questions to wrap up. And one of those is,
2: um, what is bringing you joy right now? Oh, nice. Um, a couple of things are bringing me joy right now. I mean, certainly, I think, uh, even though we know that these are very difficult times, uh, the ways that people are taking care of each other, uh, is bringing me a lot of joy. The, you know, I'll get groceries for you because your immune system's fucked and so I'll be the one to go to the grocery store or the I'll order in a meal for you or the, you know, the ways that we're sort of taking care of each other through this pandemic is bringing me a lot of joy. Um, You know, I chose to try to, like everybody else, Uh, throw my hat into the urban gardening uh, pot. And so I I planted a bunch of things on my tiny little balcony and they grew, you know, and I felt, you know, a a, a sort of daily meditative practice of caring for these plants. And that has brought me a ton of joy. And now the harvest is coming in and I'm eating kale and I'm eating collars. I'm from the South, so that's like Southern food and I'm really into it. And there's tomatoes growing and that's, that's bringing me quite a lot of joy. And then I think... Yeah, just, um, you know, sort of knowing that um, I'm just headed into a period of of ramped up creation. I've been in a present presentation mode for a while. Uh, I've been sh- showing work and presenting work, which is the flow of it. But I'm about to go into a bunch of creation mode. And, and that is always really exciting because it's like the making stuff. And I, you know, I mostly work in drawing and performance these days. But I did a, a painting, like an actual painting. A couple of weeks ago, for uh, Chase Joint's film all about trans uh, disclosure and trans identity, and uh, it was so fun to paint again. So I'm just <laughs> really excited about going back into creative mode. It's bringing me a lot of joy. That's
0: awesome. Thank you. Yeah, I feel you on the like getting all the good foods we can before before the snow hits us here in Ontario.
2: <laughs> mm-hmm.
3: Definitely. Cyrus, I had so much like love, respect, and adoration for you and your work um, in the time in the years that I've known you and known as your work. Um, and one thing that I love about your work is that it allows me to have a clearer vision for the work, the future, have more hope for the future, and kind of have more desire for what the world can be and what I can be for the world. And so we also like to ask our guests, like what is your vision? What is your hope? What is your desire for the future?
2: Yeah. Um, you know, I I think a lot about this. I mean, I've been kind of obsessed with this question. Uh, since 1996 I guess Mm -hmm. when I started doing organizing I was like what's the future going to be like but I uh, I'm very much um I'm very much interested in 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 this idea so there's this beautiful Kimia Dawson uh song called Utopian Futures and she's a black folk punk singer and uh she writes about you know this utopian future, this world where the bombing has stopped and where we've stopped capitalism and where we've healed the earth. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I think that's pretty much it. You know, I'm really hoping for a future where we uh, can rest, you know, where we can finally rest because we will have eradicated white supremacy. We will have eradicated race capitalism. We will have eradicated uh, medical uh, and systemic ableism we will have eradicated all of these things that that are affronts to our to our persons to our to our bodies every day and we will be able to therefore rest we will be able to you know, lie in the grass or sit under a tree. We'll be able to watch paint dry if we want to. We'll be able to chat with friends. We'll be able to make art. We'll be able to do all of these things because we won't be fighting against this wicked, wicked system. We'll just be able to exist. We'll be able to just live, you know, and just be free. You know, and Asada Shakur talks about being a reluctant warrior. And she says that she's a reluctant warrior because she wished she had been born into a world where struggle wasn't necessary because she would be free to be so much more. She would be free to be a sculptor, a gardener, a carpenter, um, but instead she's the struggler because of oppression. And I feel like for a lot of us, we've become these reluctant warriors, but we're hoping for that time when we get to pause and we'll get to be the carpenter and the sculptor and the gardener you know, and I want to, I want that for us, where we get to just basically, I'm just going to work on some woodworking today. I'm going to draw, really, I'm going to go sit by the creek. I'm just going to, like, we could just, we could actually just live in this beautiful, beautiful planet, and we could be in relation to each other, and we could take care of each other, and we would make sure that everybody had what they needed to survive and thrive, and we could just live and just be be there for each other. I mean, it could be so much more beautiful than it is, and I, I think that it's actually not hard to imagine, how to get there. Because we know that even if we don't know exactly what the system is going to need to look like in order for that reality to be present, we know that we can come up with something better than our current one. So it's just time to take a leap and um, and imagine a future that is that is different than this one.
0: Times is presented as a part of the Wheels on the Ground podcast network. This podcast is produced by us and supported by Tangled Art plus Disability and Bodies in Translation. If you enjoyed this interview, we release new episodes every Monday, wherever good podcasts can be found.